So it's really wonderful to be back on the creativity retreat. This is the second year that I've taught this retreat, and it really has a unique feeling. It's different from any other retreat at Spirit Rock. And on reflecting on it, I was thinking that the only retreat I've ever been on at Spirit Rock that's remotely like this is the family retreat, which I have been going on every year now for the past five years with my son, Skye, who's now 10 years old. And the family retreat has a number of features which you will not find on any other retreat at Spirit Rock. For instance, there is Water World, where they have sprinklers and pools set up down by the community hall and slip and slides, and uh, everybody goes down there and plays after lunch. Another unique element is the sidewalk chalk, where you can draw pictures all up and down the road and write messages of loving kindness to all beings or to specific people on the retreat. Uh, There's lots of blowing of bubbles on the family retreat and singing of songs. There's the art tent where you can weave friendship bracelets and make shrinky dinks. And uh, even the food is different on the family retreat. There's lots of macaroni and cheese and sloppy joes. And one evening on the family retreat, there's a campfire where we all sit around and sing songs and have s'mores. And on this last family retreat, even the monks from Abayagiri who were down here had s'mores while sitting around the campfire, even though it was well after noon, which is their last meal of the day. And one of the monks said at the end of the retreat, he had this bemused look on his face. He'd been a monk in Thailand for 25 years or so. He said, that was the first marshmallow I've had in about 40 years. (laughs) So... It's, it's quite different, uh, but Sky was very excited to come with me on this retreat because I'd been going on retreats without him since he was quite little, and so now he felt like he really knew what a Vipassana retreat was like. And <laughs> the next time I went, he said, it's so great, I'll just picture you in the art tent. And I looked at him, I had to break it to him that there was no art tent on the Vipassana retreat. And he looked very puzzled, and he looked at me, and he said, why not? And I had to think for a minute, why not? Why isn't there an art tent on every meditation retreat? So it was wonderful coming on this retreat where I was able to tell him that, yes, indeed, there was basically an art tent, and it made him quite happy. And although we don't on this retreat have bubbles and s'mores and uh, there aren't quite as many temper tantrums around bedtime, there's, I think the essence of the thing that makes it feel familiar to me is that we do very much invite along our inner child on this retreat. That wild, free, passionate, in-the-moment, chaotic, kind of messy, creative part of ourself, which isn't always explicitly welcomed on a meditation retreat, is very much welcomed on this retreat. And in fact, we need it because that's the passion, the essence of the creative process, is that kind of alive, awake feeling. And so I wanted to talk a little bit today about that energy, that kind of wild creative energy, that creative force, and talk about it from the point of view of a meditator and a yoga practitioner, and also from my experience of being a writer, 
because I know from my experience that there's a way to practice all of these things, whether it's our spiritual practice or our creative art, that really puts us in direct contact with that kind of aliveness, that kind of quivering alertness to life. And there can also be a way that we hold our practice that I know also from my own experience that almost shuts that down, where something in the way that I'm holding my identity as a writer or a yogi or a meditator squelches me, pulls me in, contracts me, makes me feeling like, feel shut down, like I'm doing things wrong, like I'm not, like there's some ideal that I'm living up to that I'm not, uh, that I'm trying to live up to that I'm not fully realizing. So I'd like to talk really from my own experience about what are the practices and the attitude toward our practice that we can bring into our creative journey and our meditative journey that keep it filled with that sense of aliveness and discovery. And I'm particularly interested in this question because not long ago I went through a real dry spell creatively. As Anna mentioned to you, I came out with a novel a couple of years ago, and it was my first novel. I was very excited about it when it came out, and it did reasonably well and got some nice reviews and got translated, and some good things happened as a result of it. And I kind of had this feeling that all right, now I'm a novelist, and now I can write another one, and the next one's going to be a lot easier. And uh, I'll just be able to kind of sit down and do it, because this is who I am now. And in fact, what happened when the book came out is, first of all, after it came out for about a year, I just didn't feel like writing at all. I was completely exhausted and tired of the whole process, and I just didn't want to go anywhere near the computer in that way. I didn't want to be... I, I didn't want to have that kind of project on my plate. And when I would sit down to it, nothing would happen. So I gave it a break for about a year. And then I started to feel that interest and curiosity again and thought, all right, I'm really ready to start another project now. And I sat down to to work or to write, and it just was not flowing. And what would happen is I had plenty of ideas and so I would sit down with one of my ideas and start to play with it and begin to explore it and it would go very well for a little while and then it was like I could feel it dissolving in, it's like right under my fingers as I was writing. The idea was sort of deflate and lose energy and I would start to doubt it and I would look at it and say, oh, this isn't very good and, you know, who's going to want to publish this? And then one of my other ideas would start to look really interesting. And so I would switch to that one. I would think, well, really, that's the one to work on. And I would work on that for a little while, and then the same thing would happen. And I did that several times, and it was kind of like I was just dating all of my ideas. I wasn't quite committing to them. But at the same time, kind of my novelist biological clock was ticking. I was like, I really want to have another novel. You know, it was like time. And I couldn't quite make it happen. And then right in the middle of all this, I got some word from my agent about the paperback sales of of my novel, which were not what we had been hoping for. And that, too, just kind of cut the juice out from me. It was sort of as if someone had said, well, nobody's really very interested anyway. And all of the energy went out, and it was about as much fun as smashing concrete blocks in trying to write. And to make it even harder, right around this time, my son Skye, who was then nine, 
was in the middle of this incredible creative burst. He was writing novel after novel. He would sit down, he would write a novel, you know, take him a couple of months, 100 pages or so, he'd finish, and two days later he would start his next. And when I would, he would come home from school and he would sit down and write and just on fire with it. And when I would suggest, well, maybe you want to slow down a little, maybe you don't want to push yourself quite so hard, he looked at me just in disbelief and he said, Mom, writing is fun, more is better. And I said, well, you know, it's a long day at school, you don't want to tire your brain out too much. And again, he looked very puzzled and he said, Mom, writing doesn't come from my brain. I thought, okay. And then he had a great idea one day. He said, we have this practice that we've done together since we were quite little, since he was quite little, which we call snuggle reading, where once he learned to read and I wasn't just reading aloud to him, we would curl up together on the couch and he would read his book and I would read my book. So he said, Mom, let's snuggle write. It'll be so fun. We'll sit down and you'll be writing your novel and I'll be writing my novel. So I sat down with him, and he had his little laptop, and I had mine, and he was... And every now and then he would look over at me. I'd be kind of looking. I'd write a sentence and delete it. And he'd say, I just got another page. How much have you gotten? So snuggle writing was not going very well for me. And I thought, again, why not? What am I missing? What is this thing that he has that I seem to have forgotten? And... I realized that somehow in the process of my book coming out, which I thought was such a step forward for my creative journey, I had gotten kind of invested in the idea of a product, a successful product, and uh, the whole thing that went with it, the agent, the sales, the film rights, you know, the whole thing. And it was completely shutting me down in terms of the actual creative process, and I wanted to get back to where he was. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and pulled out every trick I remembered and every practice I remembered and that I've given talks about and spoken about and read about, about how to make writing a, and artistic practice a creative journey rather than a chore. And I kind of tossed out all the plans of actually, quote, doing another book and just went back to the basics. So I thought I'd talk a little bit today about those basics because I've been in the process of doing this. It's made it a lot more fun. We are snuggle writing again. And I know these are things that I'm sure you've heard before, you've experienced in your own artistic journey. So this is just really a reminder. I'm reminding you just as I reminded myself constantly that these are the things that make the process feel alive rather than feel dead. Oh, let me find what I wanted to say. This is a new experiment, actually, having my notes on the laptop here rather than in a pile. So I'm going to see how this works. So the first principle that I reminded myself of was of really carving aside time on a regular basis. I call it sacred playtime. And it's carving out time to connect with this alive, fresh creative energy without an agenda. And again, this is an attitude that I like to carve out for myself, not just in my writing, but also in my meditation practice or my yoga practice, where it's not about getting into some shape or some form or being the perfect meditator and having this quiet meditation and living up to some ideal of what I think a meditation should be. 
But it's carving out this time to just really sit down on a regular basis and see what's here, what's alive, what are the signs of life within me, and how do I tap into that. And you've all done that in a big way by carving out the time to come on this retreat because this retreat really is about that. It's about connecting with aliveness rather than working on a particular project. But what I remind myself is it's time, even no matter how busy I am, no matter if this is not yet my job, I don't have a contract, I don't have an advance, to keep carving out that time to play in my art is really important. And um, to really set it aside in that spirit, even if it's just a little time every day or a little time every week, because it's not the amount that matters so much, it's the act of listening. So for me, it's kind of like when I start writing down my dreams in the morning, suddenly I start dreaming a lot more because my dreaming mind knows that I'm listening. When I start setting aside that playtime to explore the inner child comes out and starts offering material. And uh, and that just happens because I'm paying attention. Now, for me, it helps to have kind of a special time and a special place set aside for that. But again, I realized it doesn't do to put too much fuss on the time or the place because I ended up spending probably hours and hours and hours looking online on writingdesk.com for the perfect writing desk because I had this idea when I was feeling so creatively blocked that if I had the right, I thought a round desk would make it feel better. And there aren't very many. I looked and I searched and it was going to be very feminine and round. And I painted, I repainted my writing room and I did all kinds of things instead of actually writing. And I do have this beautiful desk in there now And just like my old desk, it's completely piled up with papers and notes and things. I can't get to it, and I sit on my couch. So the props aren't really what matter. It's more the signaling that we're coming into sacred time to play and really the invitation of that attitude in. And although it's light and it's playful, it really is sacred. Uh, Here's a wonderful poem from uh, W.S. Merwin. It's about the poet John Berryman. And so the poem is just called Berryman. And it's about the advice that Berryman gave to Merwin on poetry. He suggested that I pray to the muse, get down on my knees and pray right there in the corner. And he said he meant it literally. As for publishing, he advised me to paper my wall with rejection slips. His lips and the bones of his long fingers trembled with the vehemence of his views about poetry. He said that the great presence that permitted everything and transmuted it in poetry was passion. I asked, how can you ever be sure that what you write is really any good at all? And he said, you can't. You can't. You can never be sure. You die without knowing whether anything you wrote was any good. If you have to be sure, don't write. So I thought that was great. And it kind of leads me to my next point of uh, the principles that keep this spirit alive, which is something we've already mentioned several times, which is letting go of the idea of good or bad for the purposes of this sacred playtime, whether it's in your yoga, your movement, your meditation, your writing, your painting, whatever art art form, let go of doing it right. Now, this is a really hard one for me because 
I grew up in a military family. Uh, my father was actually an army general. And he coined a slogan for the entire 101st Airborne Division, which we had in a bumper sticker on our car. And the slogan was, we do things right. <laughs> so that was kind of the motto of my childhood. The other one, which was repeated a lot, was zero defects. So that doesn't really work out that well when you're trying to, to write because you immediately, or create in any form, or meditate for that matter, because you immediately create the split between the good part of yourself, you know, the one with all the ideals and the standards and who knows how it should be, and the bad part of yourself that you're trying to whip into shape. And unfortunately, the bad part is that creative, child, messy part, and whipping it into shape doesn't usually tend to make it that much more uh, playful. This is from a book by Bonnie Friedman called Writing Past Dark. She says, The idea of success divides us. It cleaves us. It makes us want to name some great piece of us bad and the other, the undiscovered part perhaps, as good. And it is the good that will save us, that will transform us, that will deliver to us the confidence of those we admire as well as their material achievement. The bad, that old, familiar, impulsive, groping, gooey, fixated, feverish self that keeps turning up on the paper, that self that's too much, we think we can't get rid of that fast enough. Yet our finest art will certainly come from what is unregenerate in ourself. It will come from the part that is unbanishable, immune to education, springing up like grass. So it's that part, the bad part, that actually feeds us. And so I know for myself, my richest exploration, both in my art and in my yoga practice, really comes when I'm letting go of trying to do things right, but I'm just getting in there and pushing and, and exploring and probing to see what's alive. And my meditation really comes alive when I'm tr not trying to get somewhere, but I'm just getting really curious about what's there. And my creative process comes alive when I'm kind of going in, I'm not going in like you know, someone who wants to bulldoze the forest and put up a shopping mall and sell lots of product. I'm more going in like a dog that's kind of sniffing around in the underbrush and poking his nose into dead things and peeing on stuff and really getting in and exploring and not being a trained poodle that sits on command, but really being kind of wild and exploratory. I noticed in reading over when I was in this phase and looking at Anne Lamott's wonderful writing books and also Natalie Goldberg's, but both of them have this concept Anne Lamott calls it shitty first drafts, and uh, Natalie Goldberg calls it being free to write the worst shit in the universe. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that word in here, but, <laughs> but that's the word they use. And I think that there's a significance to that word because, it again, it implies not just the sort of messy, smelly thing we want to get rid of, but the compost element. You know, it's what fertilizes. It, what, it's what nourishes and brings life. Green things can grow out of it. And so giving us the permission to be bad in that way actually creates the space in which that kind of aliveness can occur. And we can actually have some kind of real contact with what's true. 
which leads me to the next point that I want to talk about, this next principle, which is the principle of coming into our bodies. And again, that's something that's been mentioned several times already on this retreat and something we'll be exploring a lot in the yoga. So it's about doing whatever you need to get yourself into this living contact with your body before you start your creative exploration. And that could be anything. For me, it's yoga. For you, it could be tai chi or qigong or dancing or swimming, just taking a walk, just sitting and feeling your body, lying down on the floor and running your attention through your body, Um, sitting in meditation. Something that puts us in touch with the felt sense of being human and the senses of being human. Because we're inviting ourselves through this practice to taste, to hear, to see, to smell, to come into the lived, embodied experience of being a human being. And I think that our creativity is often deeply entwined with that free flow of sensual experience. Because as artists, we are deeply sensate beings. We experience the world through our senses, and then we express it in the specifics of color and shape and form and detail and words. It's not abstractions, even if it's abstract art. It unfolds and is perceived and runs through us as a sensory experience. And in fact, as I think about it, I think that that might be why spiritual paths that are afraid of the body are also sometimes afraid of the arts. The most extreme example, of course, is the Puritans, who, you know, you were not supposed to dance, you were not supposed to sing, you were not supposed to tell stories, you weren't supposed to act plays, you weren't supposed to read anything but the Bible, because all of those activities open us up to the senses, and then what might happen? You know, how might that, um, how might that uproot things, upset things? throw things out of tidy alignment. So really what we're doing in this kind of spiritual practice, the practice of creativity and the practice of embodiment, is we're really allowing ourselves to drop in and feel and touch and open to these energies. And in doing so, we greatly enrich our lives as artists. One way we do that is by opening to the emotions because as we feel our bodies, we start to feel the feelings that are lodged in ourselves. And so our emotional life becomes rich and alive. We're in touch with the feelings of anger or sorrow or loss or grief, all of these human emotions. We're in touch with the feelings of being in contact with other humans and their stories. And we really invite in that kind of sensitivity through our body. Another great quote, this is from a sculptor called Annie Pruitt. She says, the most demanding part of living a lifetime as an artist is the strict discipline of forcing oneself to work steadfastly along the nerve of one's most intimate sensitivity. So that's what we do in our meditation, in our movement, in our art. We open to that kind of sensitivity. And then who knows what might happen? I have another great poem. which I think is about the creative process, although it's ostensibly about a bear. It's called Destruction, and it's by Joanne Kiger. She says, First of all, 
Do you remember the way a bear goes through a cabin when nobody is home? He goes through the front door. I mean, he really goes through it. Then he takes the cupboard off the wall and eats a can of lard. He eats all the apples, limes, dates, bottled decaffeinated coffee, and 35 pounds of granola. The asparagus soup cans fall to the floor. Yum. He chomps up Norwegian crackers stashed for the winter. And the bouillon, salt, pepper, paprika, garlic, onions, potatoes. He rips the green Tara poster from the wall. He tries the Coleman mustard. He spills the ink, tracks in the flour, rips open the waterbed, eats the incense, and drinks the perfume. Knocks over the Japanese tansu and the Persian miniature of a man on a horseback watching a woman bathe in. Knocks shelter, whole earth catalog, planet drum, northern mist, truck tracks, and women's sports into the oozing waterbed mess. He goes down the stairs and out the back wall. He keeps on going for a long way and finds a good cave to sleep it all off. Luckily, he ate the whole medicine cabinet, including stash of LSD, peyote, psilocybin, amanita, benzedrine, valium, and aspirin. So... That's kind of what it's like. <laughs> We're opening ourselves to these energies. They move through in unexpected ways. Um, they're not Puritan, uh, but they keep us alive and they feed us. And when we're really in touch with them, it doesn't matter to us whether it's good or bad or whether it's selling lots of copies or a few. What really matters is that sense that you know the bear is coming through. So the next principle that I want to talk about, which is re- deeply related to this principle of being in the body, is this principle of listening to the inner impulse, of tuning in and sensing what wants to move and then following that flow wherever it takes us. And again, I know in your writing, in your painting this week, this has already been talked about, that sense of trust of seeing even if I don't know why I'm reaching for this color, that's the one that's calling, so I'm going that. And I thought I wanted to paint, you know, a dog, and I'm reaching for purple, fine. Just let the inner impulse lead. Or in the the writing, what are the words that's coming? I thought I was going to tell this story, but now it's going this way. I thought the character, you know, was was falling in love and instead she's breaking up and walking out the door and joining a monastery. What's happening? I'm going to let her do it because that's what's that's what the inner impulse is telling me. And to really trust and learn to follow it. We can learn through our bodies and our yoga and our movement and our meditation to be sensitive and let this unfold. The poet William Stafford called it following the golden thread that thread of authenticity that leads us deeper. And at one point, Robert Bly asked him, well, are certain threads more important than others? You know, certain ideas, are they going to lead us somewhere better? He said, no, every thread you pick up will lead you. Every thread is golden. You can pick up any one and start to go following it, and it will lead you on the journey that you're called to go on. Here's a poem that Stafford wrote about that thread. It's called The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. 
People wonder about what you are pursuing and you have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop time's unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So obviously he's talking about a thread that leads us in our art, but also that leads us in our life. And by cultivating it in our art, we're more likely to be able to follow it in our lives as well. And I think that's particularly helpful when we are feeling blocked, when we feel like there is no inner impulse guiding us. Because what I've found in my movement practice is when I feel stuck, when I feel like nothing's moving, that's the time to go in and listen even more closely. Sometimes what I listen to is the block itself. I listen to, oh, what is that pain? What is that stuckness? Am I trying to force something that really isn't ready to move? Am I trying to bully myself into a pose or into an artistic direction that isn't really right? And is that why things are frozen? What is the block itself saying? What is the intelligence in this? Rather than assuming it's wrong and pushing past it. You know, in my case, my block was, I was pushing too hard on product. You know, I was too invested in the idea that now I have to have another book and I needed to back off from that kind of bullying attitude, really breathe and listen to that block very carefully. And then what I do is I look for, well, what's moving around what I thought was stuck? So in movement, it's like, well, the hip's really stuck, but is the back moving a little bit? Where do I move here? Where can I find something that's alive? There's always something, even if it's just a little finger that's moving. So if in my art, it's like, it's just not going over there. Where is there just some little flicker of movement? Can I tune in? Can I listen to that? Knowing that they're all equally valuable. As William Stafford said, they're all golden threads. Letting go of the, of the uh, controlling, the pushing, which is a big one for me. It's, it's tied right in there with doing things right, you know, immediately getting in and bossing things around. Um, just thinking, just came to me this knock-knock joke that my son told me at one point. See if I can do both parts. So, so uh, actually, why doesn't, uh, Wes, you be the, the person. I say knock-knock. Control freak. Oh, no, 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 you're doing it too fast. You've got to wait and come in again. Let's try again. Knock-knock. <laughs> So that's a familiar energy in my life, the, uh, the control freak energy, the, the jump in. It's like before I'm even off the ground following that thread, it's the wrong thread. I mean, it's just clearly it's not golden, you know, it's not going anywhere good. That leaping in. So that's what I have to relax and let go of a lot. Just let the thread unfold. what I want to say of this next. There's so many principles. Another principle that I found very helpful, especially in this block time, is working with the yogic idea of prana, or energy, or what in the Chinese medicine systems is called qi. The sense of the life force that's always flowing through us, 
flowing around us that we can open ourselves up to that's larger than we are. And often, again, when I'm feeling stuck, it's really just because I'm depleted. You know, I haven't done the things that restore and rebuild and connect me to that life force. That relates again with that coming into the body energy. So really tuning in. What can I do to rebuild and restore and refill my well? Uh, Whether it's taking a break between projects that may be a lot longer than our conscious mind had thought we should take. Whether it's not pushing at the page but going out and just lying in the garden and looking at the sky whether it's doing a long restorative yoga pose like we did in the yoga session this afternoon where instead of doing and acting and moving we're actually lying back and tuning in and refilling the well or perhaps it's the other perhaps the prana, the energy is low because there's not enough movement there's not enough flow just the physical act of going out and walking of moving the body of swimming or dancing, turning on music, breaking things up, can kind of get that energy flowing and moving and expressing itself. And in that way, in a very physical way, I find that, again, I recharge myself. So for me, that feeling of block and heaviness and stuckness is often something that I don't need to address on the physical level I mean, on the, on the mental level or the conceptual level, but it's something that I need to address on the energetic level. And there are actually whole arts in you know, yoga or tai chi or martial arts or movement systems like that, which are all about rebuilding and restoring and filling that well. And so in the movement practice over the course of this week, I'll be offering you some of these tricks for movement Um, these practices that can help us restore. There's also just the concept that Julia Cameron talks about, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, of the artist state of going out and and, uh, filling your well in that way, making sure you're replenishing yourself in these stuck times with things that are fun for your inner child, for that inner artist. And then also for me, it's making sure that I'm uh, allowing that inner child to express and play kind of without embarrassing her, Uh, without, I don't know, it's like the inner shaming parent that can come along and, and shut that process down, really allowing that voice to play and be heard. I actually had a breakthrough on that whole process when my first book came out um, dealing with my actual parents because I was very nervous about having my retired army general father and my Catholic mother, both in their 80s, reading this somewhat racy novel about a young woman's adventures um, traveling through India and screwing up her love life. And I really felt there were some parts of this book that I really didn't want my parents to read. And so I remembered this trick that I had had that they had done to me when I was a child, which when they were giving me books that they thought there were parts of that were inappropriate for me, they would mark in the margins, children, skip this. And they would give me this book in full confidence that I would skip that part. (laughs) So I thought, I'll do the same to them. So I gave them, 
you know, the signed copy of my book with parents skip this in the margins all the way throughout. I figured I'd done all that I could um, to allow myself to be myself and not to suffer their judgment. And so I waited nervously for their response. And my father called me up a week or so later. And he said, well, you know, I gave the marked book to your mom for her, for her to read. And I read the whole thing on Amazon. And he said, you know, I just want to say you're a tremendous writer, dear. And your ability to go into the experience and the psyche of a character who has absolutely nothing like you. And, you know, and whose life experience is completely different from yours. And, you know, it just it's a really wonderful work of fiction. Dear, and thank you very much. So, all my nervousness uh, was for nothing uh, because denial runs deep. <laughs> so, my mother's comment on the book was that my vocabulary had increased dramatically since I was five years old, and wasn't that a good thing? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, it was a real liberation for me from both the outer parent and the inner parent, and a real encouragement to that playful spirit. see if there's one more thing I want to say here about all of this. I think the last principle I want to talk with, which uh, really helps me a lot and is also deeply entwined with the meditative journey and the journey into the body, is the uh, reflection on impermanence. And again, when we come into our body, when we come into our practice, we can't avoid seeing this. We can't avoid seeing how nothing stays the same day to day, how things change in the body, how things change in our life, and how everything that we cling to most dearly in our bodies, in our practice, in our, in our creative process is impermanent, is going to pass away. I'm going to read another poem, just because on this retreat I love to read lots of poems. This is Kay Ryan, The Niagara River. She says, As though the river were a floor, we position our table and chairs upon it, eat and have conversation. As it moves along, we notice, as calmly as though dining room paintings were being replaced, the changing scenes along the shore. We do know we do know that this is the Niagara River, but it is hard to remember what that means. So yes, um, every now and then in our life and our practice, we remember that this solid floor is not only a river, but it's the Niagara River and where that eventually is going to lead us. And when we hold our creative process in that context, Somehow it's easier to hold it a little more lightly and a little more playfully as well as a little more seriously. Annie Dillard says, Write as if you were dying. At the same time, assume you write for an audience consisting solely of terminal patients. That is, after all, the case. So yes, knowing that, knowing that we're impermanent, knowing that our art is impermanent, knowing that it's all just writing in the sand. How do we hold it? How do we hold our playtime? How do we hold our creative journey? How do we hold this week that we have together and our time in the writing studio, our time with the page? Kind of amazing how both poignant and liberating 
that is. And as we hold it in that way, we can know that, yes, it's impermanent. Yes, it's chaotic. Yes, it's sometimes dark and messy and complicated and we're down in the muck. But it's also joyful and light. So I'm going to conclude with one more poem. This is called You Can Take It With You by Josephine Jacob. And I think it captures this creative spirit that we're exploring this week. Two little girls who live next door to this house are on their trampoline. The window is closed, so they are soundless. The sun slants. It is going away. But now it hits full on the trampoline and the small figure on each end. Alternately, they fly up to the sun, fly and rebound, fly are shot up, fly are shot up, up. One comes down in the lotus position. The other, outdone, somersaults in air. Their hair flies too. Nothing, nothing, nothing can keep keep them down. The air sucks them up by the hair of their heads. I know all about what is happening in this city at just this moment, every last grain of darkness. But what I see now is the two little girls flung up, flung up, the sun snatching them, their mouths rounded in gasps. They are there, they fly up. So enjoy the trampoline this week. Really enjoy bouncing in the setting sun. And uh, I'll see you on it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.